All right. Well, I better kick us off because I know that you have a wonderful book talk prepared. So welcome, everybody. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm assuming that most of you know us. We are Benjamin Franklin's library, founded in 1731. And over the past 300 odd years, we've changed some. Today, we are an exceptional, if I say so myself, research library that supports research fellows and independent scholars from all over the world. And we're delighted to fulfill that mission. And this fireside chat series, which is a weekly webinar, is very much nourished by that community. And we're delighted that we have such loyalty from our fellows that we can enlist to sort of sustain this community while we're in this weird time of having to do everything remotely. So with that, it's my pleasure to welcome Chris Phillips, who is professor of English at Lafayette College and a scholar of the historical poetics and history of reading. He's the author of, as you'll hear tonight, The Hymnal, A Reading History, which was out of Johns Hopkins University Press in the second half of 2018, as well as the Epic in American Literature, Settlement to Reconstruction, and the editor of the Cambridge Companion to the, to, to the Literature of the American Renaissance. He's also the PI for the Easton Library Company Database Project, which reconstructs the usage of the first subscription library in Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley. And notably, he was a research fellow at the library company in 2016. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much, Will. And thanks to all of you for attending this evening. Yeah, hopefully you can uh, sit back, relax a little bit. And what I'm uh, hoping to give today is a bit of an overview of the book, but also a little bit of making of, you know, one of the joys of getting to do this under the auspices of the library company is, as Will said, I had a fellowship that was really formative for this project. And one of the things that I'm excited to do is to show a little bit of some of the behind the scenes, like how things got pieced together, and also part of how exciting it is to work at the library company, but also to be able to put together uh, connecting the dots between what the library company offers and what other libraries in Philadelphia offer. Because again, this is one of the great book cities um, in North America. And so I'm going to yeah, take us in a, a few different directions here. As I get my screen sharing started, one of the things that I also want to uh, mention is that I'm going to be highlighting you know, most of my images are from LCP materials. And this is a chance to kind of show off the hymn book collection in the Library Company of Philadelphia, which is not one of the most uh, well-known, one of the most celebrated parts of their collection, but it turns out there is a lot of good stuff in here. And uh, I'm happy to say that it's actually getting better. Uh, I think in the audience tonight, we have uh, Professor Joe Brown and uh, the collection of her father, Presley Brown, has uh, very recently been added into the collection uh, at LCP. So this really wonderful hymnology collection is actually getting stronger. And so I'm hoping that more people will be inspired to see what there is to learn uh, from these kinds of materials. And again, because I'm trying to, to highlight what I learned from the library company, I'm calling this Philadelphia Stories. And uh, hopefully the stories don't get too meandering as I go through here, um, but I'll generally follow the three main divisions of my book, which was uh, what people did with their hymn books um, in church, what they did with them in schools, and what they did with them 
at home. And I'm really working before the modern hymnal uh, comes into focus. And I'll talk about that in just a moment, like what is the nature of these materials. Uh, I first want to do just a brief acknowledgement. You know, this was um, eight years of research that went into this. And the librarians at all of these institutions were uh, immensely helpful in bringing this together. And I loved when I uh, went for just one half day of research at Dickinson College's library, they had this poster on the wall, keep calm and ask a librarian. And I keep telling my students, do that, keep calm and ask a librarian. Uh, but there are one, maybe two uh, key names missing from this list. And that's because the real kind of um, home bases for this project were the library company and the American Antiquarian Society. And these are some images of the uh, the book trucks that the librarians very graciously brought out. You know, how do you do a project like this? You just look at a ton of hymn books. You know, there's obviously more to it than that, but that's the core of the archival uh, lift involved here. And so this involves a pretty good amount of labor for the librarians, as well as it does for the scholar. And I've got just a random uh, page of notes there as I'm trying to track through bibliographies of one thing and another. So you know, we'll see a little bit of there, but thank you uh, particularly to the AAS and most of all here to the Library Company of Philadelphia and uh, Jim Green and Connie King in particular just really made this project uh, much stronger than I uh, had even thought that it could be. So now let me talk a little bit about the things, these hymnals, uh, or I'm going to keep using the term hymn books. And why I'm doing that is when people hear hymnal, the kind of image on the screen is probably what you think of. You know, we've got printed music, we've got printed words, they go together, they're what's called interlined. Uh, interestingly, with this particular book, this is from 1902, this particular uh, book, which is an Episcopal collection called the Church Hymnal. And uh, you have one interlined verse and then the other one's showing up underneath. That's a late 19th, early 20th century convention. After a while, most of the words will move up between the music staffs. The thing I'm looking at is what was the norm before about 1880 or so in the English speaking world. And that looked like this. This is from uh, Lowell Mason's Church Psalmody from uh, 1830. This is actually the book that uh, was used in Emily Dickinson's church when she was growing up at First Church Amherst. And as you can see, there are these uh, numbers, there are little um, headings, uh, there are these CM designations, which is common meter. And that's the thing that tells the choir or the musicians or the music director what tunes you can put to this. So they will do a mix and match kind of game in a typical service. There might be favorite tunes that people will put to certain texts. Joy to the World is here. There might be that famous tune they put to it, but you could put uh, the Amazing Grace tune, New Britain, to this. You could put the Yellow Rose of Texas if you really wanted to, uh, because this is, it, it's a very uh, widespread kind of meter that you're, you're going to find. It's why it's called common meter. So these books can be sung from, but they also can much more easily be read compared to the ones with the music in them. It's actually one of the reasons why it takes until the 1880s for the ones with music to catch on. It's not because you can't print the music. It's because people don't want it messing up their page. Uh, tunes are usually produced in separate volumes. And usually it's only the choirs who are dealing with that. 
So these books get much more portable. They're used in many, many different places. And you might even own more than one if you're someone who uh, lives in a house with a lot of books. You may actually keep some at church if you have rented pews. Uh, you'll keep some at home. It's often one of the first books, kinds of books that a child will receive uh, when he or she is learning to read. So these books live really rich, multi-dimensional lives with the people who use them. And that's where the story that I was interested in pursuing with this project is when these books are portable, when they're privately owned, they're not provided by churches when they look like this. Um, what do people actually do with them? So to start getting into this, I want to start off by showing a couple of highlights from the library company collection. And I'm gonna start using these to uh, emphasize some things that I think are really significant patterns about what people do with these books. Um, this first one is, uh, it's a psalm book that has hymns in the back. This is what's known as the Tate and Brady uh, version for those of you who are familiar with, say, uh, late 17th century, 18th century uh, religious verse. This is really, really big in Anglican and Episcopal circles for uh, about a century. And this particular uh, edition, it's lost its title page, but it's the 1765, uh, I believe, the, um, the Boston edition. And I'm showing this. I don't have a whole lot that I figured out what to do with this for my project, but this is my homage to Jim Green because this book happens to have the very first uh, book plate made in British North America. Andrew Barclay's uh, booksellers and bookbinders book plate is on the, uh, the, the end paper of this particular book. So Jim, thank you for you know, your efforts in helping to make this project doable and to continue to grow the hymnology collection. So this is a shout out to you and a fun little uh, bit of bibliography. A lot of these books you know, carry not just traces of religious use, but just traces of book use, traces of uh, bibliographic lives lived, um, sometimes really kind of astonishing, often accidental. And this is a good example of it. This is one of the earliest um, copies of the Bay Psalm book that's in the collection. This is from 1729. And one of the things about this one that you can start to get into as you examine it is, you know, we've got the title page on uh, the left of the screen on the right is the end of the book where you can see the pages have just started tearing and crumbling out so that you can see the layers of the words. And this particular, this is a fancy book because it has about 10 pages in the back that have engraved music staffs to show the most, say the 10 most popular tunes. And for most churches, uh, for most of the 1700s, 10 tunes was plenty to get the work done. Uh, which is astonishing for those who know modern church music. But again, with the mixing and matching, you needed a couple of common meter tunes, a couple of long meter tunes, maybe a short meter tune, and a couple of other things to cover you know, strange occurrences in your book. And that is pretty much all that you needed to know. It's what people could keep in their memory because most people wouldn't have had access to this kind of staff music. And if they did, they probably couldn't read it. So we get some really interesting kinds of, uh, in this case, a cross-section of what kinds of apparatus, what kinds of help for readers uh, does the book provide. Um, 
there's all kinds of customization people do with these books. And the most conspicuous is probably the binding. These are two uh, books from the collection at the Presbyterian Historical Society uh, about a quarter of a mile from the library company. And I think I saw Charlene uh, Peacock uh, on the meeting tonight. Charlene, thank you for you know, your help in getting to these kinds of material. These are actually two copies of the exact same hymn book on the same cradle to give you an idea of the scale. The one on the left is a big, what would be called a pulpit copy. So this is the only one the church buys. This one would sit in the pulpit. The pastor would use this, visiting preachers would use this. And you know it's Presbyterian because it's got a paneled binding with a St. Andrew's cross on it. That's about as Presbyterian as bindings get. Um, this is the 1843 uh, Psalms and Hymns for the use of the Presbyterian church. The one on the right is a pocket edition that's probably about that high. And uh, it's all the same text, uh, just obviously laid out a little bit differently. The text is a whole lot smaller, but you know, this is part of what happens with the hymn book market is that people want these for easy travel. They want larger ones for you know easy reading at home. And then you have uh, the one on the left. This kind of book would sometimes be advertised as ideal for clergy and the aged because of the big print that it has. Uh, so these are some of the kinds of uh, lives that you see lived because the um, the one on the right probably was sold with that binding. The other one is definitely a custom binding. And we'll see a lot of custom bindings as we go through. A couple of other examples of those. These are both pocket-sized Methodist books. So that these are LCP books. Uh, the one on the left in that uh, striking red Morocco, what's called a wallet binding, where it has the, the strap to hold it closed. That is the, um, the first hymn book produced by the Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in the South, uh, after the North-South split happens in the 1840s over slavery. That's the first one that comes out from uh, the South in 1848. The one in the North comes out in 1849, and a version of that is on the right side with a blue velvet cover with uh, metal uh, gilding around the edge. It's got a clasp with the owner's name on it, says Emma. Hopefully you can see that a little bit. And then uh, right in the middle of the cover, is another uh, metal decoration that has the word hymns on it, just so that you know, you know what the book is supposed to be. So you could show off a lot of bling with these books. There's a lot of conspicuous consumption in uh, rich churches that you'll see going on, even as you can see very, very cheap bindings on a number of other books. But what do you do with bindings besides show them off? This one is a really interesting example uh, owned by J.C. Platt, who is one of the founders of Scranton, Pennsylvania. So, you know, he's in some ways, you know, part of where we get the office from, just removed about 15 generations. Um, he has a larger format uh, book, kind of like the one that had the big cross on it. But what he does with his book, besides putting his name on the front, having this really nice uh, gilt stamped Morocco, is he glues an envelope into the back of his book. What does he keep in that envelope? The thing just uh, on the edge of the picture gives us the clue. He had a newspaper clipping in there that he had folded up several times. This was from a religious newspaper. It was a story of actually a court case, a lawsuit between the elders and the trustees of a church in Pennsylvania. And the thing they were suing over is 
The trustees wanted a new organist. The elders said they got to hire and fire the organist. And this went all the way up about three levels of Pennsylvania courts, uh, started in church court and then went through civil courts. And so this is the last civil decision uh, where they said, in fact, the elders do have the authority to hire and fire organists. Just imagine why Platt may have wanted to keep this tucked in his hymn book that he would have with him every Sunday and probably other days of the week for prayer services and such. Like, why would you need this available to you? There's something really interesting going on in First Presbyterian Scranton, obviously, here. Other kinds of things that are done with the book. Um, shout out to Sonia Hazard, a scholar of uh, religious textuality, for bringing this to my attention. We were research fellows at the same time. This is a copy of Village Hymns, which was a popular kind of camp meeting book, um, especially in New England in the middle third of the 19th century. Um, and this particular book has been turned into um, kind of a talisman. It's been turned into this mourning object for the young woman who's pictured here. We don't know who this woman is, who her family was, uh, judging from the materials and what she's wearing. This is late 19th century. The book is from the 1820s. So this is done much, much later. The book may have been handed through the family or come in by other means, but the book is essentially unreadable now. It's been turned into a pure object, if you want to think of it that way, because this has actually been nailed onto the front cover. There is a nail head on the other side of this cover if you were to open the book. And so in order to keep it intact, you have to not use it. This is something that I also got really, really interested in. What would people do with these books besides reading them? You know, the great question that Leah Price opened up several years ago. Um, this shows up all over the place here. We saw what Platt was doing using his book as a storage device. In this case, it's being used as a memorial device. Um, one other uh, kind of interesting binding before I start getting into some specific stories of uh, what I've found in doing this kind of research. This is a copy of Jeremy Belknap's Sacred Poetry that was a very popular book in Unitarian circles in New England in the 1790s, the first part of the 19th century. Um, Clarissa Reed, don't know a whole lot about her, but the thing that I find really interesting about this book, if you take a look at that spine, if this book was sitting on a shelf, you wouldn't know what it was. You wouldn't be able to differentiate it from other things other than just the ornateness of the spine. This actually happens in a lot of hymn books in the 18th century and into the early 19th century. You will find a number that will say hymns or Watts or Wesley or you know, something along those lines, but many of them don't have any words at all on the spine. The reason is because they didn't need any. And part of that is because these books almost never went on a shelf, standing up on end alongside other books. These would have stayed lying down flat, either in a pew, if that's where you kept your book, or it would be on an end table. It might be on a dining table, as it would be used for family devotions. So these books really were part of the furniture that people lived in. And the choices on the bindings, you know, this kind of binding was done a lot with other kinds of books early in the 18th century. But by mid-century, that was really going out the window. People were much more interested in identifying titles and authors on the spines. But with hymn books, that's really delayed. 
because these books are so special and they're used in such particular contexts and they're placed in such unique places that they announce themselves just by being there. So let me now start taking us into a little bit of what's going on with the texts. And one of the things I got interested in, how do the texts travel between these different collections? Because collection after collection after collection is coming out. Lots of hymns are being written, but not that many new ones. You know, it's very rare you get an all new text hymn book. So a lot of this stuff is recycled. It's edited, gathered from elsewhere. These are anthologies uh, for the most part. And so one of the really fascinating things was how do different churches put together, anthologize the hymns that are of their community, but also that come from outside. One of the really fascinating and odd examples comes in this book, uh, the African Union Hymn Book of 1822. So this church gets started actually a little bit before the AME church does officially. Richard Allen is producing hymn books for people worshiping with him as early as 1801, but the uh, the church that he formally organizes doesn't uh, really come to fruition until 1816. This group is about five years earlier than that. Uh, and after they've been around for 10 years, they decide, hey, we should have our own hymn book. They've been borrowing other kinds of Methodist books. They're a Methodist group like the AME Church, more working class, more lay-led uh, than the AME Church is. Uh, and this, the African Union Church in Newcastle, Delaware, produced this African Union hymn book. I apologize for how horrible the, the photograph is. This is the only surviving copy of this book, which is very common with early African-American hymnals. Uh, a lot of the earliest ones only survive in a single copy. And this one is in the Union Theological Seminary Library in Manhattan. One of the things that bibliographers had noticed about this book and other scholars working on it is that there's uh, a really fascinating, strange text that shows up about midway through the book that begins with the lines, on Afric's land our fathers roamed. This has been claimed by some scholars of African-American uh, music and culture to be the first hymn published in a Black church book in what we could call a Black voice. And I was really kind of fascinated by this and trying to fit, well, where does this come from? And that question was just kind of tucked away in the back of my mind. And as I was doing work in Philadelphia, one of the places I went was the Free Library of Philadelphia, which holds the American Sunday School Unions books uh, that were part of their kind of um, working library in this organization that was one of the, the publishing juggernauts of the 19th century. The ASSU put out huge amounts of material, and this is their slightly earlier incarnation. They're not the ASSU yet. They're the Sunday and Adult School Union, and they're still kind of focused on Philadelphia, although they're starting to uh, distribute to other areas by 1819 when this particular book comes out. This has a section in it uh, towards the end that says for adult learners. And here on number 104, we get on Afric lands, my fathers roamed. So not our fathers, like in the Union Church book, but my fathers roamed, a free but savage race. No word of light their minds informed of God's recovering grace. And when I saw this, I said, how did this wind up here? Like, why did they get this from Philadelphia? Were people coming down from Philadelphia with these books and say, hey, this is a great hymn, we should use this? Uh, well, as I kept looking through different ASSU materials, I came across this book, Original Hymns for the Use of Adult Scholars 
in Sunday schools, written by a member of the New York Sunday School Union Society. So one thing to explain about these adult scholars is that uh, for these early urban Sunday schools, following on their London predecessors, um, the big task of these schools was literacy. Yes, they were teaching people the Bible, they were trying to teach people Christian values, uh, but a lot of these were really kind of get kids off the streets efforts. They were for the working classes and uh, people who didn't have work. Um, some of these were providing meals to children. Some of them actually provided clothes uh, to children who didn't have them. And a lot of these urban, we could almost think of them as mission schools that are really doing this kind of social work, um, would start up evening classes for adults. And again, they would be focused primarily on literacy, using religious text to teach it, yes, but learning how to read was the big draw. And in places like Philadelphia and New York, the adults who are most interested in getting this kind of literacy support are often free Blacks, and in some cases actually slaves, especially in New York. Uh, this particular group, uh, in fact, taught a number of slaves um, who generally had their uh, owner's permission, but not all of them did, uh, to come to these classes. When I opened this book up, I found this glorious mess. Um, again, this is the ASSU's personal collection. So they have copies of their own publications, but they also collected lots of other Sunday school material, basically so that they could uh, poach whatever they were really interested in cycling in. Again, this is anthologizing. They're trying to find texts from elsewhere bring them into what they want to do. So someone at the ASSU or uh, the uh, Sunday and Adult uh, School Union got a copy of this and decided, oh yeah, we wanna use this text for our adult learners, but let's take those stanzas out. Let's rewrite this a bit. We'll rearrange a little bit. And so this hymn number three here, on Afric's land, my father's roamed, shows up. And the preface explains that the reason why these were written was because the main text being used for the literacy instruction was Isaac Watts' Divine and Moral Songs. And this is where the How Doth the Busy Little Bee poem comes from, or Tis the Voice of the Sluggard, you know, the Alice in Wonderland uh, poems that she winds up messing up. Um, and as she's, uh, as this um, individual was visiting these Sunday schools, hearing these uh, students recite, he said, I was seeing grandmothers the, these black grandmothers reciting these poems that are in the voice of little children. And he's, that's demeaning, that that shouldn't be happening. So let's write some new texts that are in the voice of an adult. And so most of these uh, or these texts in this collection are focused on uh, how old somebody is, you know, I've lived so many years and have never given myself to God, you know, those kinds of ideas. But some of them express the race of the Black students who will be attending here. And somehow, it's still not 100% clear how, but there are some ways we could uh, certainly guess, these texts move from these literacy sites in the urban Northeast into Newcastle, Delaware, and gets rewritten as an expression of a worshiping community instead of the expression of an individual student. So this kind of example shows, you know, 
not just how porous the line between black and white was, and there's certainly a lot of examples of spirituals uh, going into hymn books that uh, we could talk about during the Q&A as well, but this kind of uh, recycling, repurposing, taking a text from one context that isn't immediately in a church and then moving it into a church setting is one of the things I got really, really interested in with this project. Now, I'm going to try not to tell too many sad stories here, and uh, I also don't want to tell too many stories to eat up the Q&A time. I'm going to turn to one sad story here because many, many hymns are hymns of comfort, hymns of mourning when tragedy strikes. And this particular hymn, uh, I first encountered on this monument. This is in the Woodlands Cemetery on uh, the other Alexander Hamilton's um, uh, old property in West Philly. This is close to the VA hospital in West Philly, if you're familiar with that area. And um, I was really kind of bowled over by this monument when I first saw it. You know, it, it's tall and impressive, but when you get up close and see what's written on it, uh, the story is just heartbreaking that's told in these few words. Uh, to the memory of Margaret, wife of Charles A. Muir, who died July 3rd, 1844, in the 19th year of her age. Also, Charles Augustus, son of Charles A. and Margaret Muir, who died June 20th, 1845, aged 11 months, 20 days. So this is a woman married in her teens who dies in childbirth. The child survives almost a year and then also dies and they're buried together. And the lines appearing underneath, past the struggle, past the pain, cease to weep for tears are vain. Calm the tumults of the breast, they who suffered are at rest. When I saw it, I was incredibly moved. And uh, also uh, my research gears in my head started turning. What is this text? How did they find this to connect it with this family's very intimate, very painful story? Um, and so the first thing I did when I got home was to Google it. And I found out that it shows up on a few other tombstones, but that was about as far as I could get. There are now some more things that you can find doing a Google search for this. But at the time, there wasn't much besides these find a grave uh, kinds of hits. So a few weeks go by. I haven't really figured out anything to do with this, but I uh, find out that there's a copy that's not in the online catalog, but it is in the collection of the Presbyterian Historical Society uh, by a woman named Jane Lewis Gray. Now, why I was interested in Jane Lewis Gray was that she was the wife of John Gray, who was a pastor at First Presbyterian Easton, which is the town that I live in, the town where my college is. And he was also one of the founding trustees of Lafayette College. Um, and Jane Lewis Gray was a well-known magazine poet of this time, but refused to have her work collected into a book until after she died and her children had this privately printed. There are only maybe seven or eight copies that are located today. And um, Lafayette now has one, but at the time they didn't. So I come across this book and I think, wow, this is fascinating. And I start flipping through and taking a look at different things that she's writing. And I know she writes a lot of occasional verse and she writes a lot of elegies. She also writes comic verse. She's actually a very good comic poet. Um, but as I'm going through and going through, I suddenly come across this, past the struggle, past the pain, cease to weep for tears are vain. That's the one from the cemetery. 
And so it turns out I, I eventually tracked back, okay, where did this show up? Where was this known? This was published in the Presbyterian denominations uh, newspaper, the weekly newspaper um, in the 18 teens, or actually, I'm sorry, 1820s and uh, circulated in many other religious magazines thereafter. So this was how it was winding up on epitaphs was people were seeing it in these magazines and memorizing it, clipping it, whatever they happened to do. And so these lines could then move again to these other contexts. Um, Jane Gray wrote also a number of hymns that show up in hymn books. This is not one of them, uh, but this is the kind of, you know, Sometimes it's hymns, sometimes it's poetry, but it's often used for very different things uh, that I got very, very interested in as I worked through uh, this project. I'm just keeping track of the time and trying to decide which story I want to end with because I have more stories uh, queued up than I'm gonna be able to tell. I'm gonna finish with another one that is not incredibly happy, especially at the beginning, but I think is both, uh, really of the moment and also is uh, shows how deeply hymn books feature into the lives of people both individually, but especially in this story in terms of a social uh, kind of experience. So 1844 was not a good year for Philadelphia. Um, among the things that was not good about that year was what had become known as the Bible riots. Uh, this was the result of years of mounting tension between uh, nativist groups, uh, basically anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic uh, groups who said, you know, only white Protestants should be true Americans. And um, Philadelphia had been getting a lot of Irish immigration uh, as a result of the famine, as a result, you know, other kinds of uh, persecution. Uh, lots and lots of Irish have been moving into the area and another, some new waves of German as well, but the Irish were the main concern of the nativists. And things kept rising and rising and rising in tension until in uh, July of 1844, um, there were several nights of riots. And on the third night, uh, nativists who had been uh, breaking into the buildings around St. Michael's Church in Kensington, which was a, a very Irish North Philly uh, neighborhood at that particular time, um, set fire to St. Michael's and burned it to the ground. The same night, another mob shows up at St. Augustine's, and this really kind of uh, shocks the city. St. Michael's was shocking enough but this was not in a working class Irish neighborhood. St. Augustine's was the big rich people's church on North 4th Street. It's across the street from St. George's Methodist Church, the church that Richard Allen and his associates walked out of uh, to start to form what became the AME Church eventually. And if you look at the building of St. George's, which still stands in North 4th Street in the old city, um, you can see scorch marks on the stone from this fire. Uh, so both churches burned to the ground. Uh, several people were killed, most of them uh, Irish, but a number of nativists were also killed in the course of these days of riots. What had set all this off? Well, it turns out the beginning of this disagreement, and the reason why it was called the Bible riots, is that uh, Philadelphia did not have parochial schools at this point. New York had started parochial schools, but Philadelphia's Catholics were uh, poorer as a group, and uh, they were also more integrated in a city that really prized its uh, religious plurality, its pluralism, 
uh, and its tolerance uh, that it had expressed since the colonial era. And, uh, or, you know, so the story people like to tell went. And in this particular instance, as the public schools organized in the 1830s in Pennsylvania, it was supposed to provide a secular non-sectarian education. In practice, part of how that was interpreted was that there would be non-sectarian opening exercises in the morning, which involved readings from the King James Bible and the singing of hymns. And the hymns would come from Methodist and Episcopalian and Presbyterian and Baptist sources. And so as far as Philadelphia's Protestants were concerned, it's egalitarian, it's ecumenical, it's non-sectarian, it's just good morality. For Catholics who read the Douay Reims Bible, not the King James Bible, and who had different hymns, and they did not generally agree with the theology of the Protestant hymns, this was not going to work for them. And things really started to uh, come to it. There have been complaints for years about this in the late 1830s, early 1840s. In 1842, an Irish American uh, teacher was fired from a Kensington school because she refused to uh, do the opening exercises that the school board told her that she had to do. Um, this set off a print uh, battle back and forth, people arguing, you know, Catholics are trying to destroy the Bible, Catholics hate God, you know, where we heard that kind of thing lately. And um, at the same time, you know, Catholics uh, saying, you know, we want uh, the same rights for our children that these other uh, children have, you know, how are we going to do this? The bishop at the time tries to move to a compromise but in 1844, there are more uh, disputes in the schools. The school board tries to fix things. The change in policy makes things worse. And in 1844, the, the kind of um, gasoline on that fire is that the nativists finally have enough political clout that they are fielding their first presidential candidate in 1844. They're, it's an election year. And so all of this comes to a head and will eventually lead to uh, the creation of the parochial system in, uh, in Philadelphia under uh, Bishop John Neumann, now St. John Neumann. Um, but these weren't just Bible riots. As I said, with the morning exercises, one of the things that was really important about this was the singing of hymns. And one of the things that it occurred to the Catholics of Philadelphia through all of this is that, well, we have Bibles, there are plenty of Douay Reims Bibles that are being printed as well as imported, um, but we don't have hymn books for children. There are some Catholic hymn books that are produced. They're pretty strictly for devotional use. There are some exceptions to that, but they're mainly for devotional use. And so there's no Catholic equivalent to what the American Sunday School Union, for instance, is producing for uh, broadly Protestant students. So in the course of 1844, there are three new hymn books for Catholic children that hit the market in Philadelphia. One of these is produced in Baltimore, and I've actually had a little trouble finding information about that one. But uh, the ASSU actually owned a copy of the first one to come out, William Cunningham's book, the only one that was available at the time that the riots happened. Pretty soon after that, Eugene Comiskey, who was the big Catholic publisher in uh, Philadelphia at this time, brings out The Sacred Wreath, the other book shown here, uh, the Catholic School hymn book, um, there are a couple of uh, copies of that one, including the ASSU one. The other one from the library company, The Sacred Wreath, that is the only known copy of the second edition of this book. It's the only one that has Neumann's 
name on it. The first edition has Bishop Kendrick's name on it, and later editions will have other bishops' names on them. But the reason why I want to uh, kind of wrap up a bit with these stories is that, you know, you have a Catholic Sunday school hymn book, except there aren't really Catholic Sunday schools for the most part at this point. The first step toward that happened in 1841, and the sacred wreath was created for this particular group, uh, the Sodality of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It was the first Catholic youth group created in North America, and, or in uh, British North America, at least. And this particular group adopted the sacred wreath, and as the system switched to parochial schools, it was used not just in the youth group, but it started to be used in the schools, in Sunday schools that came from that and eventually started to work its way into the liturgy and into the worship of the church um, to a limited extent because congregational singing was still not big in American Catholicism at this point uh, for the most part. But these books, again, are created out of this crisis, out of this realizing there's something that we need for our children, for our society that's not being provided. A hymn book will help provide the solution to that. And again, as they switch from crisis mode to this new normal of having parochial schools. These started out as alternatives that students might take with them into the public schools. And so they could look at these while their friends are singing the Protestant hymns. They wind up becoming part of this burgeoning subculture of Catholic youth that starts to develop across the 19th century. So again, these books are used to create communities. They're, they're used to create identities. And they're also used to create skills like literacy and singing. They're used to create devotion. Uh, but most of all, the thing that I found is they really were used to create lives. These were books that people really lived with. And in this case, you know, it, it could feel almost life or death, uh, what happened with these books. So I'll end there. Thank you for uh, your attention as I've walked through this kind of tour of what some of these books of Philadelphia can tell us about the lives of hymn books and the people who lived with them in the 19th century. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to hearing you know, what uh, responses or questions uh, might come out of this, what conversation we can have. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. And uh, I'm delighted that you found a way to uh, connect know-nothingism no with book history. I didn't expect that. Um, so while I uh, allow folks a couple of minutes to submit their questions, and the implicit threat being that if you don't submit questions, you're going to be stuck with mine, I'm going to ask one that I have in the top of my mind. I was really fascinated by that work that you ordered, that, that, that hymnal that you showed, and the notion that many of these didn't have any kind of identification on the spine, because they weren't intended to sit on a bookshelf. They were intended to be sort of used regularly. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm also thinking about how if they're intended not to sit on a bookshelf, they're also sort of like a coffee book or, or mm -hmm. a coffee table book. Like they're out in the open. They're intended to be seen. There's a presentational yes. effect on it. And so my question is, if it is functioning as a sort of kind of coffee table book, which has a sort of practical usage, but also a performative aspect of it, uh, particularly in the context of the mid 19th century and middle class white sensibilities, um, what are the sort of uh, de facto hymnal books that people are, are, are acquiring and putting on those mm. coffee tables? That's a great question. And uh, so the, there are a 
couple of answers and they, they can change a little bit across the, the 19th century in particular. So um, the first thing you're likely to have is your denominational book. And that's again, when I started with the, the Presbyterian book, you know, you can get a big kind of display copy one, or you can get a little pocket edition. Um, the Methodists have that kind of range of formats. Lots of Baptist organizations have that range of formats. And so that's, um, th that's a, a likely go-to for a lot of people is that it, it's your kind of displaying your membership is, is part of what's going into that. Um, by the 1830s, and th this was, you know, one of the stories that I prepared that didn't uh, I didn't quite get a chance to get to is um, coinciding with the rise of the gift book and that kind of you know the that annual you know nicely bound highly illustrated you know it, you can give this to your kids you can give this to your wife you could give this to your cousin uh, kind of a thing that was very popular in the Christmas market people would get these for birthday presents. Um, a number of those would include hymns, and as hymn reading in that kind of miscellaneous leisure reading uh, kind of world picked up, it seemed that publishers started to think, you know, we could create books of hymns that are meant to do kind of the same thing. And so you would find books uh, like um, Gems of Sacred Poetry or um, Hymns of the Ages or Hymns for Mothers and Children which the, my uh, splash image right at the beginning with the mom that has kids climbing all over her and she's trying to read a book, that's the frontispiece from the second volume of Hymns for Mothers and Children because that uh, a number of these were so popular that there was more than one volume in the series and that was one of those. So part of what you may have in the house and for example, I did a lot of work on what Emily Dickinson's family was interested in. They loved those hymns of the ages, hymns for mothers and children, you know, these kind of what I've come to call private hymn books, because they were never meant to be used in churches, even though they're solid, all religious texts all the way through, and, and could even be sung texts, you know, every single one of them. Um, but those often will have those nicely gilt covers that, you know, you leave it on a coffee table or something like that, and people will, you know, notice your good taste, as well as your piety. Uh, so the, those are, you know, some of the the likely categories uh, that people would shop for if they were going to get a, kind of a display handbook. Thank you. All right. So we actually have now several questions that have queued up. Uh, one is a comment from Denise Berklin, who says, fantastic. Thank you very much. I second that. Um, we have uh, Beth uh, Schweiger, who asks, how have you been able to document the reading of hymn books as poetry? Mm. A really good question. Um, one of the the things that I've found um, kind of odd when when I was really trying to figure out like how how do I tell the difference and how at the time did people tell the difference between hymn books and poetry or hymns and poetry? Um, a lot of it had to do with um, what kind of book you were looking at. So, for instance, um, you could find hymnals in the 19th century that included um, Wordsworth texts, that included, included things like Longfellow's Psalm of Life. Um, often those were Unitarian churches or churches that had a very kind of liberal theology where you, know, you weren't as worried about every single hymn hitting certain kind of doctrinal um, you know, check boxes. Uh, but you know, so if it shows up in a hymn book, it's being treated as a hymn. Um, but then you get these like hymns of the ages is that 
hymnody or is that poetry at that point? Because it's laid out like a nice poetry book. It's a nice octavo volume. It's got an engraving of a Turner landscape as the frontispiece. It's like, you know, it it's packaged as part of that Christmas market. Um, but everything in it could be a congregational hymn of some sort or other. Um, so I thought part of it is that, that kind of print genre uh, signals that one way or the other. But one of the things that I also noticed is um, people will... Um, people will mark these things differently. Uh, so one of the things I didn't talk about too much is what kinds of writing goes into a lot of these books. And uh, one of the things that some people will do, they'll kind of be their church historian and write the dates of when different things are sung. Um, people aren't as likely to do that with books of poetry as they are uh, with hymns. Um, I think actually maybe the the biggest thing, this, this is bouncing back to the print genre and kind of dancing around here with this question, but the, uh, um, the biggest difference seems to be, does it have a first line index? Um, because hymns are identified, hymns might have titles tacked onto them, but the titles are almost all uh, second or third hand. Like they, they didn't come with the text the way that, you know, a Wordsworth sonnet comes with a title that Wordsworth gave it. Uh, so first lines become the way that you identify these things. And so you may not have a table of contents, uh, in a hymn book. In fact, you usually won't, you'll have a subject index and then you'll have a first line index. And that seems to be one of the big indications is that when you start to have collections of hymns showing up and they're, uh, indexed by a table of contents, but not by a first line index, that's usually a good indication that at least the publisher thinks that people are going to read these as poetry and and not as hymns. It sounds like we actually just got two for the price of one there because of that sophisticated answer. We also addressed Janine Nutella's question um, about the distinction between hymnook, about the, the distinction between hymn books and uh, poetry. So excellent. Oh, nice. Uh, William Jordan has a, 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 a point of clarification for us, which is mm -hmm. uh, he commences for being very educational. He just makes a note that the Woodland Cemetery uh, was created on the estate of William Hamilton, not Alexander. Yes. Thank you for clarifying and, and correcting that. Yeah. Thanks, William. Um, yeah. It, it's um, for those of you who haven't seen the grant, they, they really are remarkable grounds because it's basically a cemetery that's built on top of a botanical garden. Um, like the botanical garden wasn't destroyed. It was, it was just built around. Um, and, uh, yeah, but getting the name right is, is definitely important. All right. We got another one from Constance Cooper who says, do you have any sense of whether African-Americans used hymn books differently than white folks? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I'm trying to think how I have seen. So one way that is pretty distinctive for African-American community. This is going to go back to the Union Church in particular, although I think there's an AME version of this as well. Um, again, the Union Church, much more, uh, much more working class, much more focused on uh, something closer to camp meeting culture. Uh, AME Church had a very ambivalent relationship to that, where many, many members of the AME Church were avid camp meeting goers, but the the uh, uh, higher ups, you know, the, the official line from the church is that that that's too disorderly. We need more um, 
you know, more control, more respect in uh, how we do things. And so the Union Church would have these what were called big quarterlies. And they were these massive camp meetings that, you know, the whole denomination would get together. And then a whole bunch of other people who just like to go to this kind of thing would also show up. And there were uh, documented cases of slaves who would get passes from their masters in Virginia, who would go all the way up to Delaware uh, or Maryland to join these big quarterly meetings. And you would have thousands and thousands of people all getting together and singing. And you had the white press showing up to basically, you know, point out all the faults of, you know, what those obnoxious black people are doing at their loud meeting. And by having those books, they would, they would always start with prayer services where they would have the, you know, the union, the African union church book, or, you know, something very similar to that being used. And the journalists would always comment, it's amazing how well behaved, how controlled these meetings are. These are actually much more orderly than white camp meetings. Um, and so, you know, they would hang around for maybe 24 hours to see what was going on and, uh, you know, have all that going. And so, you know, the first day, day and a half, they're using the books as a kind of a shield to say, hey, no, we, we can control ourselves. We've organized ourselves. We have our canon of texts. You know, we're, we're okay, white folks. And, you know, after about two days, it would start to get much more into the, the camp meeting kind of improv call and response kind of singing, and they would always end with ring shouts, uh, which are essentially African religious practices that have been adapted into a Christian framework. And those are the things that usually really freaked white bystanders out, but they'd all gone home by then. Um, so this was a way for this, you know, very um, un underprivileged church to keep its authentic expressions, but find a cover so that they they didn't get the outside pressure that uh say the ame folks were really worried about excellent so i'm afraid that we probably only have time for one more question so i'm going to miss a couple of folks i apologize profusely uh but i'd like to get to cheryl thurber who um expresses an interest in sunday school hymns and she asks, mm -hmm. do you have any sense of how to figure out which hymns were particularly were particularly popular in the hymn books in terms of the pre-hymnals. Hmm. Especially interested in Sunday school. Um, so before, just to, so Cheryl, I'll, I'll answer this a couple of different ways just to make sure that I, I understand what you mean by pre-hymnal. So um, if this is when it's just words only, um, one of the ways uh, that, for instance, I, uh, Alyssa Clapp Itnire has a marvelous book uh, on um, children's hymnody in the 19th century. And she's focused mostly on the British context, but so much of the British material gets recycled in the States that um, it, it, it's really, really helpful for understanding the American scene as well. Um, she actually did a count. She gathered up, a, I think it's about um, 80 different uh, books and counted like which texts show up in the most. Uh, books. So her study actually gives you a really nice table of which ones tend to show up toward the top. And one of the things she found is that the ones that are the most popular tends to be congregational hymns, not ones that are written just for kids. And her guess for that is because these books are all put together by grownups. And so one of the things that you do as a conscientious hymn book editor is you put all your favorites in so that they also become the kids' favorites. 
Um, so, you know, if your one of your favorites is a mighty fortress is our God, that's not one of the ones that actually gets very high in Britain, but, um, you know, you add that into the kids book alongside the, you know, Jesus help a little child and, you know, the Jesus loves me and you have some of these other kinds of texts. So, you know, she's done the groundwork to figure some of this out. And again, um, one of the things that you can do is to look, and one of the things that I've tried to do is take a look at the books that get republished a lot. So for instance, that 1843 um, Presbyterian book gets printed in tens and tens of thousands. Um, which things they choose to put in, which things were in the book that came before that, and which things are in the book that came after that uh, will often give you a pretty good idea of which texts are not just kind of popping in and out of books, but actually have some staying power uh, going across. Thank you so yeah, much. Really interesting question. Absolutely. And um, sorry to all of you who I couldn't get to. It's officially 8.02 on a Thursday evening, and I don't want to tax your generosity a moment longer. Uh, but first off, thank you, Chris, for sharing this extraordinary book. Thank you. Yeah, and, and thanks to all the you know, listeners and questioners. Yes, and, and certainly um, for all of you have, who, who have joined, I encourage you to come back same time, same place next Thursday when we will welcome yet another uh, book talker, uh, Jen, Jen Mannion is going to be talking about oh, wow. Husbands, A Trans History. That is a great book. Yeah, people come back for that one, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you all. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Great. Thanks. Cheers.